Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This one's a doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. And we talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. Yay! We do. We're back. We're back with another bonus episode this week. We sure are. Which also is our quarter century mark. It is. Episode 25. Look at us go. Can you believe that we've already done this 25 times plus? It's weird, because it's like... It's kind of like when you have a kid, like not mm-hmm. completely, but like when you have a kid and they have a birthday and you're like, how are you for? Right. Like it also feels like you've been here forever. Right. So it's like that. We're like, I feel like we've been doing this for a long time, but also 25 feels kind of like, like I'm proud of to- doing it 25 times, you know? Right. It's, it's, yeah. It's one of those things that you, it almost sounds like it's too small of a number. And then also it's like, that's a lot. Totally. It's yeah. a lot of times to set this whole thing up and, and do it and go crazy. So I've written roughly at this point, what is it like several hundred pages of research? Oh, yes. <laughs> if every single one is somewhere in the vicinity of 20 to 30 pages, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's a, yes, that's a lot of pages. The math of it might be too much. It's a little, a little much for, for, 1245 at night. Yeah, but here we are. <laughs> but here we are. We would not be doing this tonight if we did not have a flight to catch tomorrow. This is true. This is true. And where are we going? Where Where are we going? Are we, we are going to Las Vegas, That's right. Nevada for Emo Fest, a.k.a. When We Were Young Festival 2022. That's right. So by the time this episode airs, uh, it will have already happened. Mm-hmm. And you will probably have seen lots of fun behind the scenes, not really behind the scenes. We don't have that kind of access, but behind the scenes with us yeah, (laughs) of being in Las Vegas (laughs) and uh, at this festival. It's a hotly requested uh, bit of content. People really want to know what happens behind the scenes with the This One's a Doozy podcast crew. Well, you're going to find out this weekend if you follow us on Instagram, (laughs) or you will have found out probably at this point. Uh Yep. Well, with that, we have our first question that we always ask. What are you drinking? Well, tonight, it it called for desperate measures. Once again, got me a big old Dr. Pepper. Nice. Yep. Classic. Classic. What do you have? Oh, I uh, have a Coca-Cola, which I added French vanilla flavoring to because I I like the vanilla Coke, but McDonald's doesn't do vanilla Coke. So I have a regular Coke with French vanilla in it and white rum. Yes. Because that those things just go so well together. Yeah. I, I learned that when I was, uh, like, how old was I? 24, 23. I was living in a house full of guys, and one of them said, hey, you should mix vanilla Coke and white rum. And I have never looked back. Yeah. It's a great mixture. You don't regret that decision. Not even a little That's bit. That's good. No regrets. Mm-hmm. Well, we, because this is a bonus episode, we do not have a feel-good fact for you. So you have to wait till Thursday to get your next fix of a feel-good fact. That is a lot of Fs in that sentence. My goodness. Yes. We love an alliteration. Tons of alliteration. Um, so why don't you go ahead, my love? Take us away. All right. So for this week's bonus episode, I wanted to take a look at a few haunted spots from around the world. Narrowing down which ones to talk about was tough. Because there are so many weird and creepy places all over the world that I learned about on my quest to figure out what I was going to talk about. (laughs) So if you guys like this sort of compilation style of episode where I tell a few short stories about a specific topic, please let us know so 
we can do it again if you like it. Maybe we can talk about more haunted spots later on. So uh, let's get into it. Okay. So pop a lit candle in your jack-o'-lantern, grab a steamy cup of cider, and strap in. Because this one's a doozy. Oh, man. These, they're, they're just always good. You're so good at this. I love you. Oh, my gosh. Thanks. I love you. <laughs> do you really think so? Yes. I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right. So we are going to start today's episode off with a pretty crazy place known as Pavalia Island. Pavalia Island is a small island located in the southern area of the Venice Lagoon between Venice and Lido in Italy. So this place reads like a how to make a cursed island handbook. The island has served many functions over thousands of years that we have documentation of, with each and every one carrying the notes of death that has earned it the nickname Island of Ghosts due to its disturbing history. Spooky. Yes, very spooky indeed. So early on in the 5th century, the Roman Empire was in major decline. Various Germanic peoples were fed up with the powers that be, and so Alaric, the leader of the Visigoths, and Attila, the leader of the Huns, along with various other groups, sort of led crusades against the Roman Empire, Mm -hmm. pillaging cities and seeking to bring Rome to its knees. This was obviously chaotic. For anyone who knows even the bare minimum just about the Huns, you know that once this group grew, they were pretty unstoppable. They were a violent force that spared no man, woman, or child in their path. The Huns and Goths went hard after both the Eastern and Western Roman Empire, and in 421 AD, at the height of the chaos, various people would flee from their homes, mainly from the, I think it's pronounced Padua and Este in Mm. Italy, in search of refuge. One of the places that became a safe haven to anyone who could escape was the island of Pavalia. There are so many little islands in the lagoon, and all of them are pretty difficult to defend, so they were pretty much left alone by invaders for the most part. Like, these islands just weren't worth the trouble. Hmm. So while these were the first recorded people who lived on the island, historians believe that it may have been inhabited as far back as 2000 BC by a group of people known as the Eugeni. Oh, wow. That is my Nebraskan pronunciation of that word. Sorry about that. (laughs) That's as close as I would be, too. (laughs) So these people lived throughout the area for a time, and they Hmm. assumed that at some point they may have taken up residence at Pavalia Island. So by all accounts, the people who took up residence in Pavalia lived and thrived there for some time until the 9th century. Italian governing powers took note of Pavalia and had the people establish an Italian municipal government, putting a podesta in place which a Mm. podesta is basically just a leader of a northern or central Italian city-state, which was the way to go back during the Middle Ages. So eventually, during a war against Genoa in 1379, Venetian officials forced the residents off of the island of Pavalia, relocating them to a different island during this time. Hmm. From that point forward, despite many different efforts by the government, the island would remain dormant for at least 200 years. Long time. Wow. Wow. When the bubonic plague hit Sicily in 1347 and Venice in 1348, it was most likely being brought in initially from the various ships coming in and out of Sicily from other parts of the world. So I really shouldn't need to spend tons of time on this because we've all learned about the bubonic plague many times over. But just for the (laughs) sake of the story, let's lay down a little bit of like statistic. Yeah, yeah. Just basic bubonic plague Information. Yes. So there's dispute on the official death counts. But overall, it's believed that somewhere around 25 million people died due to the plague, or roughly one-third of Europe's population. And conservative estimates show that somewhere around another 20 million died from the disease in Asia. That's just in two places. Yeah. So it was like sweeping through. I think we've heard about the plague. We know lots of people died. But I think hearing numbers is like always staggering to me. Yeah. It feels more real. So. Well, I, I think I remember hearing at one point the percentage of the bubonic plague, uh, sorry, the the world's percentage that the bubonic plague took out was like somewhere in the vicinity of like an eighth, which is significant. It's pretty wild. <laughs> well, like half of Venice's population was done. Yeah. Like 100,000 people died in Paris. Crazy. Jeez. Yeah, that's crazy. So, like I said, there is debate about actual numbers across scholarship, but those are fair and reasonable estimates. The devastation would reach far and wide and long. It continued to pop up in various places over the course of 300 years. It would come and go and come and go. Yeah. So officials in Venice tried their best to make observations and treatment plans sort of as they went. And one thing that became abundantly clear was the idea that perhaps if we separated the healthy from the sick or deceased, that maybe it wouldn't spread as fast. Hmm. So they did this by creating 
two mass graves outside of the city, but these literally became so overwhelmed with corpses that they had to begin to move bodies elsewhere. Hmm. And they chose islands in the lagoon. Oh, yeah, I see. Okay. And then the birth of the quarantine would come about in the 1400s. The original idea behind the quarantine was that anyone who fell ill would be separated from the general population to try and avoid spreading the disease. Mm -hmm. This time of isolation would last 40 days, which, fun fact or whatever kind of fact, the word quarantine became a thing during this time because of sick people being sent to Pavalia and other islands during the plague. Hmm. Uh, Quaranta Giorini, sorry, literally translates to 40 days. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. So I, I thought that was interesting too. So, so the anglicized, if, if it's even anglicized, maybe it's not even technically an English word, but the anglicized, I'm assuming, word for Guaranta Guarantini is quarantine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we both just totally butchered that. Sorry, Italians. In the 1400s, Venetians would also create lazarettos, which were special hospitals designed for plague patients. This was not a great situation at all, however. Patients were being sent to various lazarettos throughout the islands in the lagoon, and just with the sheer number of patients, it was pretty disastrous. Mm. There were patients sleeping three or four to a bed, and every lazaretto was at max capacity for long, long periods of time. Oh my gosh. People literally had full-time jobs taking corpses and throwing them into mass graves without oh. so much as a five-minute break in between corpses. Wow. Horrifying. So the situation was so dire that sometimes people were on death's door, but mm -hmm. still alive, and they would be tossed into the mass graves. Oh, that's Alive. Sad. Or people that were like too sick to be able to move. Oh. They would throw them in because they just didn't have the resources to take care of them. Yeah. Isn't and that like gut-wrenching? I mean- Yes, that is really, really sad and like upsetting. And also it makes me wonder if that's where the inspiration for that scene in uh, uh, Money Python. Oh, um, <clears throat> well, yeah, I'm sure the plague had something to do with that. Yeah. I wonder if that's part of the inspiration for that scene in Monty Python where they're like wheelbarrowing bodies around yeah. them and bring out your dead and bring out one guy who's like, I'm not dead yet. Oh, gosh. It's like yeah. a whole thing. Like, I know it's comical. And they're, but, but like, I wonder if that's kind of where they pulled that from just to make light of it or to, uh, I don't know. We all use humor to cope around here. Yeah, it's true. It's true. <laughs> it's pretty dark, but it's also like just realistic. Like, mm -hmm. yes, that's a, I didn't even think of that while I was putting this together. When more plague outbreaks would occur in the 1570s and 1630s, Pavalia became a dumping ground for corpses and also served as a lazaretto for the sick or potentially sick. Mm. One scary thing about this is that if you were even remotely suspected to be sick, you'd be snatched right out of your home, away from your family, and sent to Pavalia or other surrounding islands, where the likelihood of you ever returning home was slim to none. Oh. It's believed that upwards of 500 people per day would die of the illness. Wow. For like solid stretches of time. <sighs> Unbelievable. So Pavalia was not just used for quarantine and treatment purposes. Corpses that were in the mass graves on the island began piling up so high, and the physicians were trying to cover their bases in regards to keeping the plague from spreading, so much so that they began burning the bodies. To Ooh. this day, I've seen it reported that up to 50% of the soil on the island is still made up of ashes of the deceased bodies that were burned on the island centuries ago. 50%? That's crazy. There's a lot of dispute on this, and like a lot of people say, how can we scientifically prove that? Yeah. Um... But I've seen that reported enough to be like, yeah, I should probably include that. Yeah, it's at least a speculative data point. Mm -hmm. Wow. So by the time it was all said and done, an estimated 160,000 plague victims would be sent to Pavalia Island throughout the some 300 or so years of the plague coming and going, wreaking devastating havoc each time. And one other wow. thing about the burning of the bodies on the island. I guess this was a common practice for centuries. Bodies would be removed from Venice and tossed onto large ships that would transport full cargoes worth just of dead bodies that would be dropped off in Pavalia and burned. That's wild. Someone said it was like a barge just mm -hmm. piled sky high with corpses. Wow. So interestingly, this was not only the first known quarantine system, but the island of Pavalia would become a staple quarantine site up even into the early 1800s. Ships that had passengers that were suspected of contagious illness would be screened before entering mainland cities like Venice or Sicily. 
uh, anyone suspected of having the illness would remain on Pavalia until they either died or recovered. These hundreds of years worth of countless deaths and sad mass burnings of corpses would earn the island the nickname Island of Ghosts by Venetians during this time. Hmm. The island has seen many purposes over the course of literal thousands of years, from a plague spot to a mass burial site to execution grounds for criminals who were killed by drowning and so on. Hmm. So as if this isn't bad enough... The island's legacy of dark torment and tragic death would only grow in 1922 when the island was repurposed once again, this time as a mental institution. Oh, no. Oh I feel like you know exactly where yeah. I'm going with this. Oh. So we haven't talked about this on the show yet, but the state of mental health care has been a mess throughout pretty much all of history. Yeah. We're finally just beginning to see some progress in that area today, mm -hmm. but there's still so much work to do in regards to making mental health care available, affordable, and rightly viewed as like a medical necessity by the public at large. Right. So humans have been notoriously terrible about how they handled mental illness, how it was diagnosed and how people who suffer from any degree of mental illness were viewed and how they were treated. This time in history is unfortunately no exception. Yeah. For starters, the hospital itself was extremely badly constructed. The place was not set up well at all for those struggling with mental illness to come, be treated with top-notch medical care and dignity, only to be eventually released with a treatment plan that they could bring home with them. Mm -hmm. That's not a thing here. <laughs> so instead, it was more of like a place where people were exiled. Yeah. You didn't even have to be like clinically mentally ill. Mm -hmm. If you were eccentric, if you had things that bucked against the norms, you were a candidate. Very yeah. sad. Yeah. And it became a place where those struggling with mental illness could be pushed off, experimented on, abused, and tossed aside many dying untimely deaths. Mm -hmm. Their situation was made more dire when many patients would report seeing shadow figures during the day, accompanied by the disembodied wails of what most people believe to be plague victims Aww. screaming in pain and heartbreak all night long. So anytime the patients would report this to like any physicians or nurses, it would not help their situation. Right, right. So allegedly the 1930s were a time that most of the experimentation took place. Whoever this doctor was, he was allegedly very cruel, not seeing the patients in his care as human, but rather as lab rats. According to legend, he showed them no mercy, exercising any and every wild, unapproved technique he could. He would even go so far as to performing lobotomies on patients, claiming this was the only way to, quote, cure them. Oh, my God. A.K.A. make them docile and compliant for the remainder of their lives. Oh. So these procedures were painful, often being performed with crude and unsanitized tools such as chisels and hammers. And patients would undergo this horrific treatment without so much as anesthesia to soothe their pain. Wow. So this guy was oh. basically just a sadist. Yeah, totally. So after some time as head honcho of the mental hospital, this doctor threw himself from the top of the bell tower at the hospital, plunging to his death. The reason that he did this is unknown, but many believe that he was haunted either by guilt or by the patients who died under his cruel hands, who got fed up with his behavior and pushed him off themselves. Wow. But the fall would not be what killed him. Apparently, as he lay crumpled at the foot of the bell tower, a mysterious fog rolled in, choking him to death. Oh, Whatever that mystery spooky. fog is, yeah, I would like to pass on that. <laughs> so rumor has it that even though the bell tower was like partially taken down and the rest of it's been boarded up, passersby of Pavalia will hear the bell tolling in the night. Ooh, mm -hmm. goosebumps. Ooh. The institution, if that's what you want to call it, was closed down in 1968 and Pavalia once again lay dormant. Hmm. Since then, Pavalia has not only been completely abandoned, but is 100% off limits to visitors with almost no exception. Really? In 2014, the island was auctioned off to new ownership, but the exchange fell through, so the prohibited lonely state of the island persists to this day. Hmm. Very few people have set foot on the island in a very long time. At least not legally. <laughs> as far as I could find, one of the few legal ventures onto the island was done by the Ghost Adventures crew, who have a full episode on the island if anyone wants to go check that out. Oh, that's a fun little, fun little tidbit there. Yeah. Old Zach. Old Zach. Despite the island being forbidden to enter, that doesn't stop some people from sneaking onto the island to have a look for themselves. 
While some find only a crumbling church, hospital, and some other scattered buildings on the small 17-acre island, many others find a whole lot more than that. Some of the accounts include hearing the sounds of pained wails across the island, as well as the sounds of the now non-existent bell in the bell tower ringing loudly. Others report seeing entities all over the island. A few modern-day explorations, approved or otherwise, have obviously taken place. So let's kind of cruise through that. Yeah, yeah. One modern story that I found was recorded by an Australian journalist in 2014 in an article entitled A Night on the Haunted Pavalia Island in Italy. In this story, the journalist, Charles Miranda, talks about his experiences. Before even entering Pavalia, he was just like out and about at a bar with a friend who was going to be joining him. Yeah. So a local man came up to the men. Uh, This guy's name was Giovanni, and he warned them about what they had to look forward to when they go. He told them, quote, watch out for Paolo. He is the bad one. Hmm. He was the doctor there. He will cause you troubles. I know them all. Paolo, Marco, Giorgio. Giorgio is okay. Friendly phantasma. My father would take me fishing there as a boy. And when I was older, I stayed there myself for 15 nights. When I came (laughs) back, I told everyone what happened to me. The ghosts, what they did. Paolo's ghost mostly pushing me. Whoosh, whoosh. Always pushing. And things moving. End quote. Hmm, that's that literally sounds like it could have been a scene in a in like the early scenes of an early of a horror movie. I know that's what I thought when I read it. So Giovanni went on to explain that even though he had told people about his experiences, that they all thought he was crazy. After doing his due diligence to warn the tourist, Giovanni left the journalists alone. Another local sitting at a nearby table told them that he, Giovanni, was Mm -hmm. right. Through the rest of the article, Miranda explains the ins and outs of the island, as well as detailed descriptions of the insides of the dilapidated and crumbling ruins that once housed plague victims and tortured mental patients. And while they didn't experience anything super paranormal on the island, Miranda paints a great picture of just how eerie the place is, such as signage reading, quote, do not dig, there are contagious bodies here, end quote. He said, quote, No ghost seen or heard, but terror enough to etch on my mind's eye an image of times past, end quote. That, that's, that's just eerie. The the word I feel like for me on that is eerie. I'm Mm -hmm. just like, ooh. I saw the pictures. It's wild. I hope you share that one. I will link that article. You guys need to see these pictures. They're crazy. Because I mean, it's been left completely unattended. And so everything is just slowly being like crumbling to the ground. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's it looks, very interesting. It, looks, it probably looks extra <laughs> ghost towny. It does. I mean, and it literally like technically is. Yeah. So one strange thing is that there was a hospital bed on one side of the room during the night while he was there. And when he passed it again in the early morning hours, it was moved to the far side of the room. Mm. This is backed up with photos that he had taken throughout his visit. It had been definitely moved, but how and by mm-hmm. who? Mm-hmm. So there's that. Paranormal researchers have indicated odd electromagnetic activity around the entire island as well. In Mm. 2016, a group of tourists from Colorado ventured onto the island and had to be rescued. All of them (laughs) were in a state of complete shock, unable to move or communicate initially. Later on, they would tell of the bizarre sights and sounds that they experienced while they were on the island. Today, if you want to go... I mean, just don't. (laughs) You have to get approval from Venetian authorities to enter onto the island. But without that, you are allowed to view the island from a distance on boat tours. Hmm. Do do it that way. That's that's fair. That's safe. So regardless of this, those who have set foot on the island in modern times all believe that something is there. What it is and what it wants is unknown. But this island has certainly earned its haunted and spooky reputation. So that's the end of Pavalia Island. That's that is, uh, yeah, I feel like that is an incredible setting for literally every Ghost Island movie that mm-hmm. I can think of. And even the ones that don't really even have, have to do with ghosts, but they're just kind of like islands with a dark history or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, that's pretty weird. Like It is. <laughs> that, it's a really great backdrop, too. Yeah. Also, yeah, it's, it's really, crazy. Really spooky backdrop. It's hard for me to comprehend being able to go back in history all the way to 421 yeah. AD. Yeah. That's wild. Well, even like you said, all the way to 2000 BC. Yeah. Like crazy. 
Totally. That's a lot of history that one place has mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Wow. All right. Do you want to talk about another haunted spot? I would love to hear all about it. Okay. We've got one more. Okay. All right. So this next story is all about the dark and disturbing history of Leap Castle in Ireland and the ghosts that inhabit the structure as a result. And the reasons why it's potentially earned itself the hotly contested title of the most haunted castle in Ireland. Oh, interesting. Okay. So quick note is I've seen it and heard it pronounced as both Leap Castle and Lep Castle. Hmm. I'm going to say Leap. Okay. I apologize if I'm wrong and you're Irish and you know about this, please leave a comment. I would love to get it correct. Yeah. I'm just going to go with Leap. So, okay. Our Midwestern accent will just go with what we we know. Yeah. Yeah. Try your best. (laughs) Try your best and smile about it. Yes. Okay. So located in County Offaly. Hope I'm saying that right. This 13th century <laughs> castle was built by the O'Bannon clan. The area that the castle was constructed on had been inhabited since at least 500 BC, however, and possibly as far back as the Neolithic era, making this place absolutely loaded with history even prior to the construction of the castle. Hmm. The castle was initially named the, quote, Leap of the O'Bannons, end quote. Oh. The O'Bannon clan were considered to be what I saw referred to as secondary chieftains. So they were subject to the rule of a different clan, the O'Carroll clan. Huh. So the O'Carroll clan ruled the area with a cruel and violent iron fist. By the end of the 15th century, the O'Carroll clan would take full control and ownership of Leap Castle. So the O'Carrolls were notorious for their use of violence and whatever other means they deemed necessary to harness and maintain power and control. Their hmm. reputation was certainly earned. <laughs> so John O'Carroll was considered to be the first prince of Ely, which is the territory that they lived in and ruled over. Hmm. Many believe that it was John who had some of the more extravagant elements of the castle constructed during his rule. John passed away from the plague while he was in the castle. A leader by the name of Gerald Fitzgerald would try to overtake the castle on numerous occasions without success as well. That is an incredible name. Honestly. Gerald Fitzgerald. Beautiful. Wow. Poetry. Oh my gosh. I love it. I love it so much. So John passed his leadership on to his son, Mulrooney, who was, by all accounts, a pretty decent leader known for his bravery and strength. When he passed away, probably sometime in the 1530s, he passed the title to his son. <laughs> this is going to be a tough one. <laughs> Fearganame. Ooh. Fearganame. Yeah. That's- so this is kind of messed up, but the name Fearganame translates to man without name in English. <laughs> It's recorded that this particular son was, quote, an illegitimate child, which I hate that term so much, but the culture surrounding that sort of thing was huge back then, especially in powerful families. Yeah. It's like preserving bloodlines and all that kind of stuff. So, But he's the one who ended up taking the title. Yeah. So he has the title. Interesting. So the way that this worked was that fathers passed titles onto sons as they died. Right. And so- in a family that's notorious for being power hungry, mm-hmm. that can turn troublesome pretty quick when sure. there's multiple sons and sure. uncles and cousins that are male and all of that. So yeah. throughout these exchanges, the bloody story of this castle would begin being written. So Firganame allegedly killed a guest at the dinner table and his servants were given orders to slay other members of the family to keep them from attaining power within the castle and beyond. Oh. Fergenheim would be killed by members of the O'Malloy clan in 1541, passing leadership on to a man named Tiege. Hmm. Without spending 10 straight minutes just listing which O'Carroll family members killed which family member in an attempt <laughs> to pursue power, I'm just going to sum it up this way. The power struggle would go on for roughly 100 years from beginning to end in this wow. clan. It was bloody and it was an all around bad time. Yeah. I feel like that's a fair summary. Yeah. So what it's I'm just going to like. Bad time. <laughs> yes. I'm going to go ahead and just kind of grab random events because I okay. feel like that's the easiest way to tell this story. So one night a mass was being held in the chapel in an upper room of the castle. One of the O'Carroll brothers, who I believed was named Thaddeus, was the priest who was performing the service. Hmm. There was a full congregation attending the service, but it was considered to be deeply insulting to begin a service without all of the family members who wanted to be there present. Hmm. 
So when Thaddeus began the service without Tiege, he stormed into the chapel, pulled out his sword, and killed his brother in the middle of the service as he knelt in prayer before the congregation. Oh, wow. Earning this area of the castle the nickname, quote, the Bloody Chapel. Yes, that is. Wow. That is the stuff that I feel like I'm I'm on a movie kick tonight, apparently. Yeah. But but I feel like that could be a scene in the new Lord of the Rings show. Like Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's wild down. Yeah. That's wild. Oh my goodness. And also there was one time without a whole lot of context, I worked a job that I did not like (laughs) sitting at a computer all day doing nothing basically. And, uh, so one day I decided I was going to research the history of (laughs) the 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 crown of Brit- great britain <laughs> heaven wow and so i went back pretty far and i actually remember not this specific thing but a lot of very similar episodes throughout english history yeah. and irish history because they kind of overlap a little bit here and there yes they do so we will sort of in a way get into that later oh that's cool So the ghost of a man in old school priestly garb is regularly reported in the bloody chapel, as well as on the stairs, leaving the hall where the chapel is located. Hmm. So within the bloody chapel is a structure called an oubliette. An oubliette. I'm going to say oubliette. Oubliette. An oubliette is basically a small chamber. Its function was meant for things like storing valuable items or to be used as a hiding place in the event of something like a siege. But the O'Carrolls were a creative clan who modified the design of the structure, complete with a trap door, leading to a small dungeon where they would throw dead or dying prisoners. Wow. Yeah. Very inventive. So creative. Very inventive. (laughs) So not to harp too hard on this, but the O'Carrolls were known for their brutality and pursuit of power. Sure. One thing they liked to do was to hire enemy clans as, like, mercenaries, paying them handsomely to go out and kill members of other enemy clans. They'd invite these people over for like a feast to celebrate once their jobs were complete. And at the extravagant feasts, they generally end the night with a bang by either poisoning the food or drinks that they'd been supplying all night or by a quick slit of the throats of anyone present who wasn't a member of the clan. Oh my gosh. So like mass murder. Yes. (laughs) Just like like casual mass murder. That's like the things that the mafia dreams of doing. I know, right? (laughs) So another time they hired members from an enemy clan for mercenary purposes and they invited them over for the feast, but they didn't kill them at the feast. Instead, they waited until all of the men were asleep and killed them in their sleep. Hmm. So that's not great. Then they usually just toss the bodies into the structure in the bloody chapel. Oh, weird. Oh, so when a different family would live in leap castle, they would make concerted efforts to kind of clean the whole place out, Mm -hmm. including this structure. And during the cleanup, they removed three cartloads of skeletal remains from the oubliette. Oh my gosh. One ghost is currently believed to live in the oubliette coming out from time to time where he then wanders around the lower levels of the castle before he returns. What? Yeah. Oh. Oh my. They don't so, know who he is. They they like try to identify as many of them as they can. Yeah. Cuz there's a lot. <laughs> and like even with how much I've written yeah. to talk about, I didn't cover all of them cuz I can't cuz there's so many. Oh my goodness. I probably should have done a full episode on this. Yeah, <laughs> just this one. Just to give <laughs> us Yeah, I mean maybe maybe we'll come back to this castle someday. Yeah, but I probably will. I'm like just knowing that there's that much amount of bloodshed, that much amount of dead bodies, wild and all that history. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. So, the final O'Carroll clan member who held ownership of the castle held on to it for 20 years from 1629 until 1649 when he passed over the ownership of Leap Castle to the first of the Darby clan. Oh, okay. So, this guy, Jonathan Darby II, received the castle and the land that it sat on in lieu of payment for military services. Oh, wow. So it's kind of a sweet deal. That's a pretty killer deal. Yeah. There would be some back and forth between the Darbys and the O'Carrolls over the course of the next 15 years or so, but ownership inevitably fell into the laps of the Darbys. Hmm. So let's talk about them for a second. Okay. So Jonathan Darby II and his wife Deborah would be the first to move into the castle in 1649. 
as was the custom, ownership of the castle would once again be passed on through the lineage of sons in the event of the father dying. Hmm. The Darbys would maintain the castle for about 200 years. Wow. When John, I know. So when Jonathan III, otherwise known as the Wild Captain, obtained power, he had a hidden massive fortune somewhere in the castle, according to locals. Unfortunately for him, though, he would be tried and convicted of treason under the rule of James II, which I don't want to go a ton into old school European politics, mm-hmm. uh, partially because I don't understand them <laughs> and partially because that's not the most interesting element of the story. Sure. Long and short, he was sentenced to death, but thanks to intervention by revolutionaries, his sentence was overturned. Oh, wow. But back on the unfortunately side... The legend states that he lost his mind and forgot where he had hidden his treasure. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. Classic. Yeah. Oh, man. Wouldn't that be nice to what? have a treasure? You have enough to have a treasure. So I'm assuming that there's probably lore that it's still there somewhere. Oh, yeah. Oh, I want to find it. No, you don't. <laughs> I wouldn't want you to go looking with the things that inhabit this place okay 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 just convince trust me. me convince me now okay. i know there's treasure there but now you need to convince me with more of the stories <laughs> okay so despite this the darbys maintain ownership of the leap castle eventually landing in the hands of another jonathan darby and his wife mildred in 1889 now these okay. darbys were wild <laughs> but before i talk about some of the wilder moves made on their part let me explain a little bit of the dynamic between this jonathan and the tenants who lived on the land. Okay. So the long and short of this is that the Darbys who preceded him had racked up insane debts, which resulted in the tenants on the land having to pay Darby upwards of 30% more in order to remain in their homes so he could pay off his debt. Oh. Though the tenants were kind and welcoming to these Darbys when they first moved in, this would be short-lived. Mm. On top of financial frustrations, legislation was passed in 1903 that would allow tenants to purchase their homes and land that their homes sat on. But Darby refused. Mm. This didn't help how his tenants felt about him. Sure. This would escalate pretty severely over the years. But first, let's chat about the wild side of the Darbys. Oh, okay. So Mildred. Old Mildred Darby. Old Mildred. So she was an accomplished author. Uh, She published many books under the male pseudonym of Andrew Mary. And Mm. while many of her works weren't preserved, one of her books about the Irish famine is still cited by scholars today, which is pretty impressive. Is it an historical Mm -hmm. account? That one is, yeah. Wow, that's really cool. Mm -hmm. So on top of her work as an author, she was a spiritualist. Mm. She regularly held seances in the castle and also participated in automatic writing. Some alleging that this process may have allowed her to pen as many successful writings as she had. She would also see spirits in and around the property. One such ghost was seen on many occasions in the priest house, which was located on the property. To this day, people claim to see what Mildred saw, shadowy forms that move around the priest house. She spoke of the spirits there in this way, quote, there's something heavy that lies on people's beds and snores, and they feel the weight of a great body pressing against them in a room in the priest's house. A burly man in rough clothes like a peasant. He always pushes a heavy barrel up the back stairs of the wing near the servants' bedrooms. And when just at the top, the barrel rolls down and all disappears, end quote. Whoa. She also talks about the spirit of a monk in the house, saying, quote, a monk with a tonsure and cowl walks in at one window and out another in the priest's house, end quote. Hmm. So she's like kind of like clairvoyant in that way. So the way that it was worded, it's kind of unclear if she was the one who was like performing the seance or if she was inviting seances to be performed in her home. Oh, okay. So I so think maybe, it's... maybe, but maybe not? <laughs> maybe, but, but maybe not. Like the implications, if she was the one who was clairvoyant hosting the seances, all of that, that would make sense. And then on the other hand, she could have just opened something up Mm. that she maybe potentially didn't mean to. Yeah. So either one of those really does check out pretty, okay. Pretty much. Regardless has a very poetic way of saying She's a writer, man. Yeah. Yeah. It shows. It definitely shows. shows. I quote her a lot in here because she's a great writer. (laughs) Yeah. Just in those couple of quotes you've already said, I'm like, the way that she exp- explains it is very like, mm-hmm. yeah, just, I don't even know. Ethereal, flowery. Flowery. Yes. Yeah, it's cool. Most, if not all of the original reports of spiritual sightings were reported by Mildred. Hmm. 
Hmm. either in her journals or in books or submissions to a publication known as the Occultic Review. So I'll be spending most of the rest of our time talking about the things that Mildred saw and wrote about. The next place where she spoke of seeing apparitions was in the murder hole room. Oh, that's a great name. Why would they call it that? (laughs) So it's (laughs) what it sounds like. Uh, So as to where in the castle this room was located, no one's quite sure. But historians have narrowed it down to a few possibilities, either in a room in the north wing or in the south wing of the castle. Hmm. So traditionally, these rooms were constructed as a safeguard at the entrance of a fortress. It's like a little hole cut above the entrance. Oh, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where people like defending the castle can sit, they mm-hmm. can shoot arrows or basically just have the advantage of stealth and attack on invaders. Yeah. But regardless, ghosts have been seen there. It's important Ooh. to note that the Darbies did do a lot of upgrading in the castle. About the murder hole, Mildred said, quote, We don't generally put anyone there now. And the story goes that the stain on the floor is the blood of a man stabbed there by his brother. The two O'Carrolls quarreled over the ownership of the castle. The room had been disused for 50 years or more when we did it up. The stain has been planed off the boards many times, but it always comes again, creeps up from below in a few hours. End quote. So there's a blood stain that they clean and it comes back a million times. Wow. Yeah. Right above murder hole. Yikes. Yeah. So one day while Mildred was in bed calling for her little dog, Nell, she reached out her hand towards the dog. When she did this, she felt a hand on top of her own that was much colder than her hand, but she couldn't see anyone. The hand held on for a few seconds, and the instant that the pressure from the other hand was lifted, Mildred heard what she described as a heavy sliding fall, almost as if someone had slid off the edge of the bed and onto the floor, followed by a distinctly human-sounding moan and some words that she couldn't make out. Mildred believed the voice was saying a prayer. What? Mm-hmm. So there's several more ghosts that I'm going to share about at the end, but let's talk about the most famous and possibly most feared entity that's said to roam the castle. The Elemental. The what? The Elemental. Oh my goodness. Is there already like a movie about this or anything like that? Because Not that, that I know of. That name alone, like, just like, I'm I'm hooked. I'm hooked in. I'm trying to figure out how to sum this thing up because it is crazy. <laughs> So nobody actually knows when the first sighting of the elemental took place, but it has been known to have been seen since almost the beginning of Leap Castle's history. The origins are also unknown, but many believe it's one of few things. It could be the spirit of a being summoned by ancient Druid priests before the construction of the castle, and that its purpose was to protect sacred Druid grounds where they practice many forms of magic. Wow. Others believe that it could be the spirit of an O'Carroll clan member who passed away from disease. They believe that because of its appearance, which I'll explain. (laughs) Others believe this was a sort of reverse inside job and that on one of his many attempts to take control of the castle, Gerald Fitzgerald, who was also a regular practitioner of various forms of magic, maybe this guy summoned something that would haunt the castle from the inside as an act of revenge that would be carried out in centuries to come. Oh, these are all such good theories. (laughs) Others still believe that during one of those seances that Mildred held, or maybe during one of her automatic writing sessions, that she awakened and maybe summoned the elemental, Mm. either on purpose or on accident. So Mildred's encounter was straight up horrifying. Yeah. She submitted her experience to the Occultic Review in 1909. And even though it's long, I'm going to share a solid chunk of it, and it's worth it. Okay. So here's what she said. Quote, Suddenly, two hands were laid on my shoulders. I turned round sharply and saw, as clearly as I see you now, a gray thing, standing a couple feet from me, with its bent arms raised as if it were cursing me. I cannot describe in words how utterly awful the thing was, its very undefinableness rendering the horrible shadow more gruesome. Human in shape, a little shorter than I am, I could just make out the shape of big black holes like great eyes, and sharp features. But the whole figurehead, face, hands and all, was gray. Unclean, bluish gray, something of the color of the appearance of common cotton wool, but oh, so sinister, repulsive, and devilish. My friends who are clever about occult things say it is what they call an elemental. The thing was about the size of a sheep, 
thin, gaunt, and shadowy in parts. Its face was human, or to be more accurate, inhuman in its vileness, with large holes of blackness for eyes, loose slobbery lips, and a thick saliva-dripping jaw sloping back suddenly into its neck. Nose? It had none, only spreading cancerous cavities, the whole thing being uniform tint of gray. End quote. That's not even the whole thing. (laughs) That's what it looked like. Yeah. So she went on to talk about how it had hair on its body and paws. She did not call them hands. She called them paws, which I don't like. (laughs) She also said that she could sort of see through it a little bit and that it smelled like death. She explained that when she smelled what was emanating from it, that it made her nauseous and dizzy and sick. It also had jagged, bending limbs. She would encounter this creature again in 1915, and then again just before perhaps the most infamous tragedy ever to take place at the Leap Castle in 1922. Oh, well, you going to tell us about that one? Oh, I don't know. Should I? You probably have to now. So in 1922, actually, I'm not going to tell you about the, her sighting. It's just, it's the same. She just saw it. It didn't do anything, but I will tell you what happened in 1922. Yeah, yeah okay, that's okay. what I, that's what I want to know. Okay, so in 1922, <laughs> while the Darbys were removing the three carts worth of deceased human remains from the oubliette, this was the time that local tenants were finally completely fed up with the Darbys and their greed and unwillingness to allow them to take full ownership of the property. His servants all quit, and a boycott was being organized against them. Hmm. At this same time, there were major political movements on behalf of Irish freedom from British rule, establishing Ireland as an independent and self-governing dominion. A treaty that had recently been signed effectively began a civil war, and it was on one side of the battle lines that would make the next move. Hmm. So one group is about to do this. Okay. So on July 30th, 1922, the north side of Leap Castle was set on fire. A caretaker that hadn't abandoned post had taken it upon himself to stop the fire from blazing out of control and to try and salvage valuables from the northern portion of the castle, bringing it to the southern part of the castle. Mm, Okay. So locals found out about that and would promptly break in and ransack the place, setting it on fire again the next day. Oh. So by the time Darby arrived back at his castle from a time away, it was too late. It's not burned to the ground, but it is not Pretty inhabitable. Severely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So over the next few years, Darby would seek aid and payment towards the damages, but would only be paid a small fraction of what he'd lost, which inevitably ended with the castle being taken over by the government and then sold to local farmers and tenants. Yeah. Which like kind of poetic justice. Yes. A little I, bit. I would say so. Like I feel like, bad for the situation, but also right. like, I mean, it was kind of inevitable. Yeah. You shouldn't be a bad if he had been a fair, like, <laughs> Landlord, owner, basically. Yeah, basically, yeah. then the situation may have turned out differently. And I get it. He had debts to pay, but it also wasn't your tenant's debts to pay. Totally. Yeah. So anyway, I'm not going to go on a rant about that. I, yeah, we're <laughs> going to be done. <laughs> so sadly, he died in 1943 and was buried on a plot a few miles away from Leap Castle. Some people believe that one of the fires was started by the elemental fulfilling the purpose given to it by Gerald Fitzgerald, mm. which is an interesting take. Yeah. They don't really have much to back that up, but a little interesting note. Yeah. Well, I mean, why not? Like if it happened out of nowhere or if it was just one of those, like, wait, why this room? Why this space? Whatever. Like mm-hmm. there's going to be a legend around it somehow. Totally. It might as well be the elemental. <laughs> might as well. So the castle remained boarded up and unoccupied until 1972, when an Australian historian named Peter Bartlett, who was a longtime descendant of the O'Bannon clan, actually, Hmm. would buy it and begin reconstruction efforts before he passed away in 1989. Restoration efforts would be continued by Sean Ryan, a musician who bought the property in 1991, and from what I can tell, he still owns it today. And despite the fact that it's still being restored, you can actually take a tour. Oh, cool. Of Leap Castle today. Or not cool, I don't know. So here's a few more really quick ghost stories. So one more notable sighting of the Elemental was recorded in 2002 by a TV network employee. He went and visited with a friend. Mm -hmm. They had entered a corridor near a spiral stairway when they were both slapped in the face with a strong smell of sulfur. 
As he stared down the darkened hallway, he perceived the presence of something staring deeply at him, almost like a predatory animal, waiting for him to make a move. So the friend who was with him, who happened to also be a friend of Sean Ryan, warned him to leave it alone, and so they left. Guests who visit the castle are advised that the elemental is an entity that's capable and perhaps eager to cause great harm to anyone at any time. Mm -hmm. It's been known to alter atmospheric pressure, lowering to the point that the pressure drop triggers what's called serotonin hyperfunction syndrome, which, crazy enough, causes symptoms ranging from heart palpitations, nausea, dizziness, terror, sweating, chills, and fatigue, which Mildred talked about a lot. Oh, that's crazy. So those atmospheric pressure drops. Yeah. Weird, right? Super weird. I mean, she recorded that over a hundred years ago. Yeah. People have been talking about this since the mid nineties, about the pressure drop that's like measurable now. Well, and it takes me back to um, the episode about, um, the dial off pass mm-hmm. where one of the theories is, um, maybe it's not pressure drop, but it's like a gravity mm-hmm. shift or something like that. The scariest stuff like, thing ever. Stuff like that happens. Gravity there fluctuation. Too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Terrifying. Oh, weird. So it's also believed that whatever the elemental is can cause an electrical charge to enter the air that you can perceive on the hair of your arms and the back of your neck. Mm, Don't like that. So whatever this thing is, do not mess with it. (laughs) So the other famous ghost is the Red Lady. Okay. Since the time of the Darbies, she's been seen around the castle with a dagger in her hand that she raises up menacingly. Light emanating from her form while she's wearing a red dress. What? So content warning for this next part. There's a brief mention of sexual violence and the murder of a child. So, which I don't normally do. So if you don't want to hear that and give you a second to skip forward. Yeah. So the origins of the red lady date back to the O'Carrolls. It's believed that the red lady was a woman who was abducted by a member of the clan, raped, and then held hostage. Mm. When she became pregnant, the O'Carrolls waited for her to deliver the baby that they promptly killed due to it being considered illegitimate. She then stole a dagger and took her own life in her grief. Mildred Darby and her guests have reported seeing her in a room of the castle that was used as a nursery, and she's regularly been seen crying at the foot of children's beds. Oh, sad and also very scary, and I just got crazy goosebumps. Just You should see the was, artistic oh. creations of her paintings and stuff. They are nightmarish. Yeah. She's very beautiful, but very scary. Yeah. That's and like, sad. It's I have so that's they're not conflicting feelings. I don't think sadness and fear have to be conflicting and like but, compassion. Yeah. But there's definitely my, my brain is like, wait, what are you feeling right now? Cause it's <laughs> a very odd mixture of these things. <laughs> I know. I know that one oh, makes me really sad. Yeah. Other random sightings by the Darby's and by guests and visitors spanning centuries include a little old man in green who likes to sit quietly by the fire. An elderly woman sometimes joins him. No one knows who they are. There are also the ghosts of two young girls that are referred to as Emily and Charlotte. Hmm. So Emily allegedly died at the age of 11 when she fell from one of the castle towers. Sad. Oh, that's sad. So her ghost, as well as the ghosts seen with her, are regularly spotted laughing and playing on the stairs, sometimes joining the man in green. One of them was seen in Mildred's bedroom in the middle of the night standing by an empty fireplace, watching Mildred as she and her daughter slept in the room. So she didn't seem scary or anything, but she was just standing there. Yeah. Still it's eerie enough. It's there's a whole lot here that reminds me of the haunting of Hill house. Yeah. You know, there's Mm -hmm. like, and actually you, you named, I said, Nell. the little dog was named Nell. I thought of that too. I wonder, I wonder what that, if that's a a related callback. Yeah. Could be. So Emily is also seen falling from one of the towers, but disappearing before she hits the ground, which is very eerie. There are many, many, many more ghosts that are seen regularly, like a solid handful that I could cover. And perhaps someday I will. Maybe we'll visit Leap Castle another day. But Mm -hmm. for now, that is what I have for you for this week's bonus episode. Oh, my gosh. 
I'm sad I, now that I didn't keep going because I can tell you want me to keep going. <laughs> I, I kind of do, but you know what? That just means we're going to come back again. We're going to put day. a pin in it. Yes, that's what we're going to do. Oh. All right, so we're going to do haunted spots again. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't don't miss out on that at some point. Man, I'm like, I'm still kind of reeling from mm-hmm. like the the crazy amounts of emotions I feel about the red lady. I know. I'm like. I'm like, oh, I feel bad for her, but also, ah, get away. Like, <laughs> there's, yeah. there's so many, like, leave my children alone. Well, when they say mm-hmm. she's, like, oh. got the dagger and she comes at people menacingly, mm-hmm. I wonder, I didn't see this anywhere, I'm speculating, but I wonder if she does that mostly to men. Yeah, I could see that. Because she was, if if her origin story is to be believed, yeah. she had a real rough go at the hands of some pretty bad men. Oof, Yeah. That's sad. I know. That's why I mostly feel sad for her. I mostly just feel sad for her. Yeah. If I saw her, I'd be like, listen. Listen. I'm so sorry for everything that happened. But just put the knife down. Would you just call her Red Lady? I'd ask her her name. Oh, that's... See, you're sweeter than me. I would have been like, listen, Red Lady. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) Red Lady, no. (laughs) Yeah. I wonder what the deal is with why ghosts are there. Yeah. There's something obviously that is attractive. I mean, in Ireland in general is very haunted. Really? At least it's uh, presented as very, very, very haunted. It's such an old place with so much history. Yeah. And like, Mm. this is, this is widely considered to be the most haunted castle in Ireland, but there are other front runners that keep up pace with it. (laughs) So what I'm saying is that, Ireland <laughs> is beautiful and incredible, yeah. but also very, very scary. There are many haunted castles. Many buildings I will not be entering. Yeah. Unfortunately, we don't have, or maybe fortunately, we don't have uh, very many haunted castles in America. Do we so. even have castles? In, yeah, we have there's castles few, in there's America. There's one in Omaha. Oh, there is one in Omaha. Omaha. There is one. Okay, never mind. Yeah. I take back what I said. Yeah, there's, there's <laughs> castles, but the, <laughs> it's questionable if they're haunted. But they're uh, not like... Irish castles. Yes, that's true. Those are fabulous, incredible, giant structures. Yeah. You know? It's, yeah. Someday, I would love to see those sorts of things on a guided tour for less than an hour. (laughs) (laughs) I would like to just watch a video of someone else's guided tour. Sure. Unless. I wonder what, if Mildred's been seen ever. I I looked for it. Hmm. I didn't see it anywhere that she's been seen, but I could have missed it. That'd be interesting. Yeah. Also, I'm still not sold on not going treasure hunting. Just the fact of the elemental being there <laughs> is enough for me. Yeah, that would be that would be spooky. There's there's enough depictions of creepy non-human humanoid things. That I don't need to see that. You're right. Never mind. We need to do some Irish folklore soon. Apparently. They've got some incredible folklore. Well, with that, now we're going to leave everybody on a cliffhanger because they're going to be like, what? (laughs) I want that too. But this has gone long enough and we will come back around, I'm sure, to a lot of these things. I love Ireland so much. Oh, this is, yeah. I would love to see that at some point. Well, if you have been listening, thank you for listening to the unusual unsettling and unsavory story today. Unsettling by far for me, this one and unusual and unusual and unsavory. See, I do this every week. Obviously maybe I should be disqualified from voting. (laughs) (laughs) It's the only solution at this point. Yes, but the only way probably, but (laughs) I'll say this, both stories really unsettled me Mm -hmm. and threw me for a loop. And it was Wow. That last one, especially I'm, I'm still discombobulated from it. Uh, If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a glowing five-star review. Um, Five-star reviews help other people find this podcast to also listen to similar podcasts and make sure that you never miss an episode by subscribing on your favorite listening platform, Spotify, Apple podcasts, Whatever good pods, good pods, um, Google, Radio Public, yep, any of those, Amazon, there's tons of options. We're on a lot of platforms. iHeartRadio, iHeartRadio, yeah. There's, there's, anyway, whatever your favorite one is, please make sure that you subscribe Mm. so you never miss an episode. Also, if you would, please go follow us on social media 
Instagram and TikTok is This One Is A Doozy, and Facebook is This One's A Doozy Podcast. And uh, make sure that you are commenting on the posts that we put up and tell us what you think about these episodes, especially if you have an opinion on whether an episode is unusual, unsettling, or unsavory. We'd love to hear from you. Lastly, you can also email us at thisoneisadoozy at gmail.com, and you can share with us your personal stories and recommendations for future episodes. We have tons of those, don't we? We have tons and tons of recommendations and a solid handful of personal stories, which I am so excited about. Yeah. So send us any and all of the above. We would We know you've seen some things or your grandma has. Yes. Please tell us about it. Get us the story. We are hungry for it. Also, if, if just as a side note, if privacy is an issue, we don't have to share your name. So if you have a story, but you're kind of nervous about people knowing that it's you, just tell us not to use your name. Yeah. Or And you can change names in the story, sure. too. And you don't have to reveal anything to us. So right. if that was a hindrance to anyone, just know that that's a, that's a thing that we're trying to protect. So Exactly. Anyway, go ahead. Exactly. No, that's great. Well, with that, we will see you this next Thursday, this coming Thursday, for another doozy. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.